interrupt this program to bring you the utility player's classified results. Red Bull Leipzig. Two. Atletico Madrid. One. Adelaide Crows. 54. Western Bulldogs. 111. Brisbane Broncos. 8. Canberra Raiders. 36. Tommy Fleetwood. 5 under. Tied 59th. Hello, we are the Utility Players, I'm Ali, and I'm Rory, and welcome to our world of sport. This week, we are not going to be having any guest. Uh, you're going to have the enjoyment of listening to myself and Rory, but in the next couple of weeks, we've uh, hopefully got some guests lined up from the world of golf, from athletics, and we uh, look forward to hearing them in due course, but for now, it's just myself and Rory. Well, thank goodness for my German team. When we started this podcast, we thought, well, we better have some teams that were uh, we could follow sort of live sports. We both sort of picked a German team, what have you. Uh, and if it wasn't for Red Bull Leipzig getting through to the semi-finals of the Champions League, uh, then there wouldn't have been uh, a win on the cards for any of our teams this week. Yeah. I mean, our German teams have done all right for us, to be fair. Obviously, Werner Braden making a brave and famous escape from relegation in the Bundesliga season. And then Leipzig, I say, fantastic to get to the Champions League semi-final, really show how they've grown as a club. Um, real nice story seeing how they've grown through the through the German leagues, at least nice story for everyone apart from the German football fans who really don't like the way that Red Bull have taken over and, and brought them to the position they're in. But most people seem to enjoy how Leipzig have gotten to their position. And yeah, so it's Germany versus France in the Champions League semi-finals. I know. And it's um, intriguing that they managed to do it without their sort of talisman, Tino Werner, who signing for Chelsea, uh, wasn't able to be involved in the latter stages as he prepares for the new Premier League season. It feels like it's just around the corner at the beginning of September. But despite not losing any players, Manchester City weren't able to, to get through to the next round. And more embarrassingly than that, Barcelona thrashed 8-2 by Red Bull Leipzig's German counterparts in uh, Bayern Munich. I mean, two upsets. Well, not an upset because you expected... Bayern Munich to to win that game, but not in the fashion that they did. And then Man City just, it seems like Pep Guardiola showed Leon too much respect playing three at the back and maybe didn't go out to dominate the game like you'd expect them to do and eventually got undone by Moussa Dembele showing that players from the SBL can still make it to the big European leagues eventually. Yeah, just embarrassing for Barcelona. Totally embarrassing. I mean, Yes, we understand that Barcelona aren't in, in the best shape that they are have, have been for a while right now. And, and and it is certainly going to be a few years before Barcelona are back to the team that we know and love them to be. But at the same time, the, it wasn't even the fact they lost 8-2. It was the manner that they just fell apart and they were just giving the ball away so easily, making no effort to win it back when, and, and just... The defense just seemed like it was it was a it was a schoolboy game. It was it was totally embarrassing, and it was it was kind of the demise of this great dynasty of Barcelona. And it'll be interesting to see what happens now because Messi apparently wants out. Apparently, he said that he's done, and they actually could be going to Man City. There's that's where the rumors seem to be be reunited with Pep Guardiola, which would be amazing. But yeah, it's totally embarrassing for Barcelona to have gone out in that fashion. Would you get rid of Messi? 
yeah, would if you're boss. I mean, I, I still, I mean, I can't, I can't picture it. I really can't picture it. Over the years, we've heard rumors of Lionel Messi moving on. At one point, I think, I think he actually has a release clause, certainly in his contract, for 500 million euros <laughs> or something. And I think some Chinese team or some team actually, you know, pursued that clause a number of years ago. And there was talks of him moving then, etc. And we've heard rumors in the past, but I just, I just can't see it. And you know, Messi wants another. Champions League. He wants to have the same number of Champions League as Cristiano Ronaldo, maybe then surpass that. I don't think him coming to Manchester City or moving to another club suddenly actually makes it any more likely that he's now going to get that Champions League. I think him at staying at Barcelona still gets as badly as they have been, you know, relative to the Barcelona we know. Him moving away from there doesn't give him any increased chance of of doing that, certainly coming to a Manchester City team, if that's ultimately where it's going, where they they get to quarterfinals and semifinals and for whatever reason, the manager tries tries to do something new. He he hasn't won the Champions League since 2011, I believe. And so why would somebody going to Manchester or fill in the blank other team that isn't maybe Bayern Munich or Real Madrid, which is never going to happen, how's that suddenly going to make it more likely that he wins the Champions League? Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I think you said, you asked first there, would would you get rid of Messi? Um, and I think it totally depends where Messi's head's at. I think that if you're Barcelona, obviously it's going to be a massive rebuild process and you kind of think, well, Messi's 33 now, maybe only a couple more years in the top level. Maybe he isn't a part of that rebuild, but you'd still want him around because you're going to have lots of young players coming through. Um, it's going to be a total kind of re- shift in, in, of personnel and mentality and and having him in and amongst that will be still highly beneficial for the team. And so if, if Messi wanted to be there, I think you would want to keep him, obviously. But I think that from the sounds of things, he doesn't want to stay, which kind of baffles me because if everyone talks about him being this one club man and this loyalty to Barcelona. And if he loves Barcelona the, the way he says he does, surely you'd want to be there as, as part of the, the rebuild process to see your club build to, to becoming the great team that you've worked so hard to make it in the past. That's about where my mind would work, certainly. But I guess at the end of the day, players are judged these days on what they win, which I also don't necessarily agree with, but that's the, the mentality of what it is. And he wants to go and win again. He doesn't see that happening with Barcelona in the next years, which I think is fair. I, I actually get the Manchester City move because one, it's one of the few clubs that could probably afford him which is obviously a big thing because he's, he's not going to be cheap and no, even if he does want away and he's, and he's ageing. But he'll be reunited with Pep Guardiola, who obviously he's got a great working relationship with and has worked with in the past. And I think that you said that his ambition is to win the Champions League. And now, yes, you think, well, maybe with Man City, they don't look set to win the Champions League. But at the same time, that is, for that football club and for Pep Guardiola, that is the one burning desire. That is the one thing that they want anything more right now than anything else and I know they've got a lot of ground to catch up with Liverpool in the league and that's something that they'll of course be looking at wanting to do next season but for them it is all about the Champions League having never won it having said Pep not won it for such a long time and and that is the kind of proving of this City team that they are one of the top teams in Europe like they think they are is winning that Champions League so if if you're if you're Messi and Pep Guardiola comes to you who's someone you have a great working relationship with and says look I want to win the Champions League more than anything you want to win the Champions League, one other thing. I think bringing you in and then bringing in maybe X, Y, and Z, who he's got in mind, I believe together we we can achieve a team that will do that. You could see how he could he could be persuaded. You could see how he could think, well, yeah, as you said, he's, he's not going to go to Real Madrid. He's not going to go to, to Bayern Munich. I mean, things are in uproar at, 
an uproar at Barcelona. Manager got sacked within hours of the full-time whistle. You kind of think the, the quality players in that team are, are the the ones who are all in their thirties and moving on. It's not none of the young lads seem to really have come through to the floor and be and be the players they need them to be. So it's going to be a huge rebuild, which probably is unlikely to happen in the next two years. You think, well, you might not have a great chance in Manchester City, but you certainly think with Pep and with the desire and with the fact that they actually probably should have got through with the quality they had, they probably should have got through Leon and got through to that semi-final. You think, well, maybe I can add something to the team that is going to get them to get them to that final hurdle and, and get them over the line. I look at Lionel Messi and I wonder if he's about to go down the same path as Thomas Muller. Now, if you think a couple of years ago with Thomas Muller, he was, uh, I think he was ousted from the German team. He wasn't really playing for Bayern Munich. There was talks about him. He was done and he's going to move to other German teams or, or what have you. And then there was a, a change of coach. There was a change of approach at Bayern Munich. Without a huge change in personnel, without a huge change in suddenly everything changing. I mean, it's pretty much the same group of players there as it was. And, and yes, they've dominated the German league, but I can't remember the last time Bayern Munich got to a Champions League final. And people are sort of saying, well, you know, as you said, the manager's gone within hours. Isn't there a, something to be said that Lionel Messi with a different manager, with a, a different sort of person coming in and looking at that squad with the lights of Griezmann and other people he's got around in the same way that Bayern Munich around Thomas Muller had Lewandowski and had uh, Serge Gnabry etc is that with just a slight change of philosophy and a slight change of direction with the same personnel that we'd be looking at it in in a year or two years time the same way as we're looking at Thomas Muller now and going actually you know what this guy is bloody good we're not saying that Messi isn't good obviously but why does Messi suddenly need to change like throughout the course of the Barcelona run, there's been times they haven't quite got there. It doesn't mean they have to. He has suddenly has to move. That that's who I kind of envisaging at the moment. Us potentially sitting here in a year or two years' time and talking about Lionel Messi and Barcelona, you know, coming to top greatness again and saying, "Well, that's exactly what people said about Thomas Muller." Yeah, I get what you're saying, but I do think the circumstances are slightly different because a lot of those players in those Bayern Munichs team were still kind of in the, in the, the height of their career. I said Miller was in his 20s at the time. Lewandowski was in his late 20s at the time. Obviously, Philip Lamb was around and he's moved on. But a lot of those players were kind of still kind of late 20s and in what you would call the peak peak era. But if you look at this, the Barcelona team that started, you got Piquet, Busquets, Vidal, Messi, Messi, Suarez, Alaba, who are all over 30. I mean, most of them are 33. So you think that actually the next two years is only going to be a decline for them. They're not going to get better. They're not going to reach new powers. They're not going to... You'd have thought maybe next year, yes. But certainly after that, they're not going to be the players that they once were. And, a lot, and they are great players. They've achieved... All of them have achieved great things in, in the world of football. But you think that their time's coming to an end. So it, it's it's five, six, seven, eight players you're going to have to replace there because we saw Semedo... He's the the fullback that have come in. He was absolutely useless. He 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 didn't show any kind of ability to defend at that level. I mean, and De Jong, yeah, he's he's been alright at times at Barcelona, but he's not maybe proved that he's got the the talent of the people who've come before him. And you think, well, it's it's going to be an overhaul. It's not going to be a case of taking the same players and getting a bit more out of them because they're all coming to the end of the toilets of their career. They're not in the peak of their career, and you just want to get get more out of them. You kind of think, well, are a lot of them done now? I I think there's a misnomer going around in sport that you get to 31, 32 
and and you're done. You know, look at the Willian de- debate that's going on at the moment. Arsenal have picked him up this year uh, on some more high wages at, at the club, and and people have gone, in the, especially in the Premier League. You get past thirty, and it's just assumed you're going to be declining. I mean, Cristiano is thirty-five. Jimmy Anderson's thirty-eight. Tom Brady is forty-four or forty-three. Like it, the players you 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 name there are in their early thirties. And yes, they might not. We're not going to play for five, six more years. But I don't think looking at them any in, in, as individuals and see decline. I, and not that I've watched a huge amount of Barcelona football. I just wonder if we are so quick and so knee-jerk reaction to say that there needs to be an overhaul, there needs to be a change, there needs to be a, a brand new bedding in of players, etc. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that necessarily needs to be the case. You know, yes, that Bayern Munich team happy like Philip Lime had. Hummels had, you know, there are sort of small pieces, you know, small numbers of pieces that have moved on. But I don't, I don't understand why, you know, the greats are still great. You know, Xavi and Iniesta, they played well into their thirties at Barcelona. You know, we talk about the top, top two midfielders of a generation, but the players you've just listed are in that top one percent. I, I think it's such a knee-jerk reaction to say there needs to be an overhaul at Barcelona. Yeah, I I do agree a lot of the times that we say it happens too early. But you said they're they're not early thirties. Well, they're thirty three. They'll be they're all thirty three basically. Be thirty four soon, and actually you think, well, that's coming to mid thirties. And you mentioned Ronaldo and Messi. Yeah, Cristiano Ronaldo's thirty five, but he's also had probably his worst season in the last season that he's had for a long time. And obviously, he's still had a good season because Ronaldo, but he's certainly not produced what Juventus have wanted him to and actually Juventus are pretty keen to get rid of him because they don't think that he's worth the money that they're paying anymore because of his declining influence he's having on games and you think well is then that going to be the case with these Barcelona players who are still going to be very good players or could get into a lot of top European teams but the Champions League is so competitive now and you're seeing the, the next stars come through like Mbappe and obviously Neymar has been around for a while but he's now obviously of that age where he's more potentially of a leading light than Ronaldo would be and and you said you've got yeah the next the next generation of talent and and is it time to start looking towards them for Barcelona I don't know maybe it is an Jack reaction maybe it is because if they lost 3-2 or 3-1 it might not be the same conversations but it just certainly seems that they it wasn't they seemed that they were a world apart from where Barcelona you'd expect them to be and it seems like something has to give. It just depends what that is. And I guess Man, Man City potentially out of all the places for, for Messi would be the one that could make sense. Yeah. And and the other thing to bear in mind, both with the Barcelona situation and the Man City situation is it's 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 one-off knockout games now. You know, over, over two legs and a normal, quote-unquote normal, that's not happening. I mean, it's not. I mean, I didn't watch it, but they're not chasing the game. They're not knowing, you know, it's, it, it, they, might, they might well have still lost. They might still have lost convincingly over two legs. I'm not suddenly saying that, but, but it, it, it does change it. So whether you prefer the format of one-off not one off knockout games or you prefer the two legs, where home crowds does play such an advantage. So, you know, there, there, there is that element to bring in. I, I don't know. So it's not necessarily a case of would this have happened in a quote-unquote normal structure. But you, you said that to me after the game. You said, well, Barcelona wouldn't have lost 8-0 in a two-leg tie because they wouldn't have been chasing the game. And I went, yeah, you're probably right. And, then, and I watched the game and, I, and I, I thought, yeah, you're probably right. But then I went back and watched the highlights and not a single Bayern Munich goal was scored from a counter-attack. Not a single Bayern Munich goal was scored from Barcelona pushing forward. Pretty much every one of them was given from Barcelona trying to play up from the back, giving the ball away in their own half, and then 
Bayern Munich just taking advantage of defenders not tracking back, not not dropping in, not dealing with crosses, not not making blocks. It was it was they were all large and large speaking. Yeah, there were some more, more moments of brilliance than others, but they were all large and large given from Barcelona's defensive mistakes. They weren't from Barcelona just throwing the gun and and going for going for glory and trying to get back in the game. It was just error after error from Barcelona that was causing the goals. Well, I actually think in a normal circumstances, they probably would have lost by potentially 8-2 or at least 6 or 7-2 because Barcelona just were making mistakes all over the park. Yeah, but you can't shut up shop. You know, if if you're away from home and, and you go 3-1 down or whatever else or 4-1, you can shut up shop and go, right, we're going to, we're going to, you know, take our medicine here, and we're going to go again, and we're going to, you know, take it to the second. You can't, you can't do that. So, you know, when when you're how many goals behind, it doesn't suddenly mean that you, you're going to just lose on the counter attack and lose goals. You know, you're completely demoralised. You know, you kind of, the focus isn't there. You kind of it gets to the stage you're just like, well, just just get me done. Let's just get the final whistle. I'll try and you know, I'm just going to play this pass in here. You know what? I'm not going to bother tracking back. You know, because we're just fed up and stuff. Like that. And yes, I know that doesn't that's not excusable. You know, they're professional players, etc. But I, I think it's you can't just say that that because it was only a one leg tie that that before there means that all the goals are going to come because it's pushing hard and it's counter attack. It, there's a case of, you know, just just giving up and getting to the end of the game. I said, you watched it. I didn't watch it. So I'm, I'm just going on kind of what I would perceive to be. And I'm certainly, you know, I'm, I have no loyalty to Barcelona, but it just, it's just such a knee-jerk reaction to say that the, the way clubs run with, with players of that calibre, yes, coming maybe at the end of the career, that suddenly everything needs to change. Because as you said, if it was 2-1, this conversation is probably not happening. Yeah, I guess that my thought was that I, I, I honestly, from what I saw and what I've seen, I don't think that defence would have been good enough to shut up shop. I generally don't because they were just getting picked apart left, right, and centre. Even when they were in, even in the, the early parts of the game, when you thought they'd be more defensively minded. But yeah, I, I do see your point that you would, if you knew you had an extra game, you would fight to the end a bit more than you might do otherwise. But I guess also maybe the way that Barcelona lost the league this year as well, potentially also helps with the decisions that have been made at that club. But it'll be really interesting to see. And I'll tell you what, if Messi does move and he does end up playing in the Premier League, what a treat we'll be in for because he'll finally, for a start, end the debate with, well, can Messi do it in another league? And also just be a, it'll be really interesting for the world of football to see how that develops. Yeah. And and can he do the old adage of Stoke away on a Tuesday night? <laughs> not, not the Stoke in the Premier League at the moment, but you get you get the picture. Yeah. Uh, and and in another world where uh, the older generation of the sport has, has dominated for the years, we saw Ronnie O'Sullivan uh, winning his sixth world championship at the Crucible this weekend. Tying with Steve Davis now is I think it's only Stephen Hendry who's ahead yeah. of them. So Steve Davis and and Ronnie O'Sullivan sitting on six, but that doesn't quite tell the whole story of the snooker this weekend because the semi-finals certainly were much more of a spectacle than the final was. Yeah, the final uh, the final was a shame because Callum Wilson did so well to get into that final, and then he just felt like he didn't quite show his best showing in the final, whether the emotions of the semi-final was too much for him or the occasion or, or just what it was because well, but Ronnie played well as well no take away from that and he is everyone's saying how fantastic he is and he is one of the sporting greats never mind one of the snooker greats one of the sporting greats but yeah I think the the highlights in the snookers was all about the semi-finals I mean both both semi-finals going to a one frame a final frame decider um Selby looking when he would went 16 13 up he looked like 
for the world, or 1614 up, sorry, it looked like for the world he was going to win that match. But Ronnie, doing what Ronnie does, winning two frames in the space of about 10 minutes to take it to the cider and then winning it to the cider. But the real one was, was Wilson versus McGill. Excellent match the whole way through. Wilson went up. Uh, sorry, McGill went up in the first session, and then Wilson fought back into it, had the lead, then McGill fought himself back into it, and the played final frame decider was over an hour long. The most tense, dramatic sporting hour I've watched in such a long time. Both both players had a chance to win it. Both players also <laughs> looked like they were trying to lose it. McGill getting caught in a snooker that he, he took about five attempts to hit and, and couldn't hit, and it all got to the stage where Wilson was, was so far ahead that he wasn't allowed to make McGill play the shot again. And then McGill got Wilson in a snooker, and then and then in the end, McGill uh, McGill lost because because Wilson actually flukes the green. He was trying to play the green safe, and he fluked it into the bottom left pocket without without meaning to go there. And this is what I wanted to ask you about, Ali, was that Wilson's reaction was was incredible, it was incredible to fluking this green. And obviously, it was such a high tense environment. They They'd been battling this thing out for an hour with both of them trying to get to their first ever world championship final. So it meant so much to both of them. But he was devastated. He was absolutely devastated that he had fluked a shot that meant that it was pretty much certain that he was going to win the frame. And he looked like he was going to cry. And he then did cry in his post-match interview afterwards, saying that's not how he wanted to get to a world final. He dreamed of this moment his whole life and he didn't. He didn't mean to get there in that mean or want to get there in that fashion. And obviously, snooker is a very kind of humble sport. It's a very respectful sport um, for the most part. For the most part, of course, yeah. But and and it's the sort of sport where if you fluke something, you apologise to your position, and that's what you'd expect. You wouldn't expect this kind of humility, and it was amazing to see. But you do wonder, actually, should he have been so humble about it? In a lot of other sports, maybe a lot of other snooker players would obviously apologise and, and say they wouldn't want to win that way, but they'd still be pretty happy that they've got to World Championship final. But Wilson almost seemed devastated. And obviously, you love to see it from a kind of human aspect and a personal aspect, but do you think actually to be a, to be a top player, that ruthless streak of, of of taking that and saying, well, it's not what I wanted, but it happened, and I'm and be almost happy that it happened, and then use that as your as your kind of moment that's going to that moment of luck that's going to spur you on to win the competition. I just thought there's a very different way you could approach it, and I don't think one's right or one's wrong, but it, it certainly seemed interesting or slightly different to what we might expect. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, you don't you don't have to be an asshole to be a competitive, driven top professional in your game you know I, in fact i take i take quite a lot of issue with people who kind of say that it's okay he's just competitive or she's just competitive you know or, or kind of they have to get into that place where they're so selfish and you have to be selfish and you have to be self-absorbed to be successful i mean i take real issue with that i just don't think that's the case at all you know these are these are human beings at the end of the day these are these are these are people these are people who have you know, aspirations and dreams and families and, and respect and empathy. And we just expect, we just see people and successful athletes who who have this kind of ruthless competitive edge and go, well, that's what they need. That's their desire. That's what requirement is. Bollocks. You don't need that. You need to be able to switch on and switch off, but that doesn't mean you need to act in a certain way. And look, he has dreamed his whole life of getting to a crucible final and 
he wanted to be on his own merits and he wanted it to be because he had deserved it and he had played well. And of course he deserved it. Of course he played well, otherwise he wouldn't have got there. But when it happens in, in a way that almost feel he's going to become the talking point or going to take away from it, because whether he'd cried or whether he hadn't, people were going to talk about this fluky green. And they would have talked about that. That is how he won it. And, and he wanted to be remembered for that. He wanted to be remembered because he'd earned it, because he'd put the yards in and he had unequivocally been the better player, so therefore had earned the right to be there. I would have have actually condemned him more if he'd gone out and been that kind of ruthless competitive athlete that people seem to love to go, go, no, I didn't mean it, but create your own luck. You know, and just kind of been so blaséing, so kind of, whatever about it almost just seems so soulless about it you know that that to me is it would have been much a much poorer a way to deal with it and would have been much more upset of him as a person obviously i don't know him you know so i say i don't know who he is but i think just showing a human side and and showing some empathetic side there's absolutely nothing wrong with that now we don't know how the emotional drain of it and how his reaction him reacting so emotionally had an effect on how he played in the final because obviously he got blown away by ronnie so if it was the case that there was some sort of hangover from his emotional response then he needs to look at how he you know switches off and and deals with that emotional and then switches on again only he can answer that question so that would be my only kind of take from that is that if he isn't able to park it and then get back into his competitive ways and up for the for the next one, and it has effect on performance. That might be what it looks at. But I had no issue at all with with it with him being so uh, emotionally driven by it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I mean, I say I love seeing so much humility within sport, which is sometimes is lacking and isn't always the case in a lot of sports. And you said there, as you we've both alluded to, there is that kind of view that you have to be this kind of selfish, slightly arrogant self-absorbed person to be to be successful in sport and I'm and I agree with you I don't think that has to be the case you certainly have to be confident and you have to believe in your ability to perform under pressure but confidence to me doesn't always transpire to arrogance I think they're two totally different things and and yeah and I think that I, I love seeing you so emotional because one you felt the emotions he felt because that last frame was so absorbing and the match was so absorbing but you also think that's probably exactly how I'd react if I was in that situation. So it was very personable. And I thought it was just really lovely to see. But I, I do think that only he knows whether that, that final frame and that match had an effect on him. But I also think partly that that final frame and that match probably would have had an effect on him either way. Even if he'd meant to pot that green and he'd played an amazing shot to, to pot it and he'd won it in fantastic circumstances. I mean, going to a final frame decider and it lasting over an hour and... And, and when it means so much to get into your first world world championship final and doing it in such mentally exhausting circumstances, even if he hadn't fluked it, you wonder whether it would have taken a toll on him either way. So I think that, yes, it might have been more so because of the, the, the shot and the circumstances and his reaction. But I think either way, it was always going to be really tough for him to get back up for it. I mean, we talked people talked a lot about in the last Rugby World Cup when England beat New Zealand in the semi-final and people said, well, that was their final and they struggled to get up for the final after that because they'd put so much into the semi-final and you do wonder well whether it would have been similar for Wilson because he had had to 
graft so hard to get into that final and going up against Ronnie, which was always going to be difficult anyway. It, it, maybe the chips were down before he started almost. Talking about grafting there, Rory, one sport which is finally looks like it's going to be getting into the graft as uh, we are less than three weeks away for the start of the NFL season over in America. A lot of debate in the world of NFL about the completely change to what is a regular preseason with no preseason games, with training camp being reduced, with less padded practices and sort of teams and coaches having to find a creative way to uh, prepare for the season. I know that you don't watch American football as closely as me. So what I'm intrigued to know what your thoughts are on teams that are relying on first-year coaches or play callers or relying on a whole bunch of rookies or new players to come in, the general consensus is that they're going to struggle this year. It's a year of the veterans. Is that something you think, as a concept, you'd agree with as we sort of build up towards the NFL season? Or do you think that actually fresh minds and fresh faces and going in with just playing the game the way you've always played it with no kind of uh, you know prescribed way about it and just playing it in a youthful way or coaching it in, in just your way and playing it for the love of it and not getting caught up in scheme too much actually might free up some teams to, to go under the radar and do pretty well. That's an interesting point. Um, it's hard because American football, out of all the sports, is one of the most tactically precise and tactically pres- prescribed almost in the way that each individual play as a play and, and each, each individual section of that play is planned out so kind of mic- microscopically and detailed you feel like out of all the sports that might struggle in this sort of scenario American football would be one of the most one of the biggest because if you don't have that time as a team working through your plays working through your tactics working through your options in each individual situation that's put in front of you it will be more difficult and especially if you're coming new into that environment and you've got to learn all the plays and and adapt to them and adapt to these new playbooks and play calls, you might struggle and, and the, the players that have been playing together and the players that have been there for longer would, would have the upper hand. But at the same time, it is there is that sort of element, well, if all the teams are, are not having the same technical, the time together as a team to work together tactically to develop their plays, to develop their calls, is it going to be the players who have that more kind of natural talent, natural instinct, and maybe kind of more old school NFL style from, from years and years ago before it, science and tactics really took over the game obviously it's always been a big thing but even more so now than it used to be and just the players with the natural raw ability whether that be blocking passing running receiving actually those more instinctive talented players and potentially fresh minds who haven't been so ingrained in that system might be more might be more successful so there's definitely two sides to it but I, I do think that the teams that are used to playing together and used to winning together and have got things in place that don't need tweaking too much and don't need developing too much during the off-season are potentially the teams that you'd favour going into the start of the NFL season. Yeah, I mean, I go back and forth on it because ultimately a wide receiver is a wide receiver and a pass rush is pass rush and an offensive lineman is an offensive lineman and NFL players are so ingrained that they're tw- the 12 months of the year runs in a particular way like clockwork. It is... You go, you know, you finish your season, you have your off season, you do OTAs, you then do mandatory mini camp, you do your off season workout, then you're into training camp, and then the league, se- and then you're in your preseason games, and the league goes again, and then it recycles and it recycles and it recycles. And everything I kind of read in here is about how different it's going to be because people are going to be thrown off 
this way of doing things. And I actually, in some strange way, quite I'm really intrigued and quite like to see how people react. I almost hate the fact it is so monotonous that it is the same schedule, the same, this is what it is. It's, this week, it's literally done to this week is, you know, week whatever in the year. And, you know, it's it maybe, so into August, it might be, oh, this is week 26 of the 52 weeks of the year. So therefore, the NFL calendar looks like this. Teams are allowed to do this. It's so prescribed, the agreement between the league and the Players Association, that on this week, players are allowed to do X and do Y. It is, it is gets almost, to my mind, gets ridiculous that there can be no sort of flexibility within that. So how are those players who are maybe used to playing together, who may be used to being, you know, playing together for a number of years, but now they don't have that off-season work, which they're so used to, being being involved and building towards. So if you're a young player who's coming into a, a new team, you're not having to catch up onto what that regimented timetable is because there isn't one. You know, it's kind of they're, they're truncating everything and throwing everything together and doing everything at the last minute. So it's a case of you just go out there and you just do what you love and you have this freedom because you're not having to be sort of pigeonholed particularly into a certain way. My concern is that there's so much old school thinking in that sport that what's going to happen is that these young up and coming players or these new players, or these rookies are just not going to get a chance because they're going to go, well, we haven't had a chance to see them in this particular structure of how things work. So therefore they're not going to work out. Sorry, we're going to stick with what we know. And then ultimately you're going to look and have a similar season to last season. And if that's the case, Tennessee Titans fan over here. That's fine with me, but <laughs> it just, it, it just sometimes really frustrates me how it just is viewed in such a particular way, and any kind of thought of oh, because they're a new player and they're they, they they're not going to be able to go up to speed straight away, it just uh, just confuses me. Yeah, I think that one thing that could be really beneficial, and if and if teams can can manipulate it in this way, is that actually you think well. Maybe because you said that regimented structure isn't going to be there, there'll be players that don't agree with that, and there'll be players who are really talented but maybe don't get the best out of themselves because that the way that that structure is is organised, the way the NFL calendar year is organised, doesn't agree with how they they work as an athlete. There might be players out there who actually in this new system excel because it suits them, it suits their mentality, it suits their body, it suits their athletic approach, and. You might get players who who really show what they're made of this year because of the different circumstances, but as you said, you've got to give them a chance, and and whether teams will be willing to do that is it'll be interesting to see because that is one of my big bugbears as you mentioned with American football that there is there does appear to be less almost creative freedom because everything is transcribed as it should be as it works in American football, and actually you you, you look at we look we're both big cricket fans and you look at sports like cricket and how cricket has developed in the last 10, 15 years with the adventure of T20 cricket. And the big part of that is basically people, T20 cricket has given people a platform to say, I'm going to play the game totally differently to how I meant to. I'm going to train differently. I'm going to approach the game differently. I'm going to, everything's just can be looked at in totally new lenses, whether it's the way you bowl, whether it's the variation shoes, whether it's the way you bat. I mean, when Kevin Peterson turned himself round and hit the ball left-handed for six against New Zealand, people thought he can't do that well, but he could because he was given that creative one day platform to do that I mean I think that was actually a 50 over game it was a T20 game but it all spawns in the same way and maybe this new 
format of American football, this new way of looking at the season will allow players to have that creative freedom to actually say, well, I'm, I'm not going to do what we've done every year. I'm going to do something different. And it, and it might work for some players, but the franchise is have to give, give the players those opportunities. They have to be allowed to trust players who aren't going to do it the prescribed way. And as you say, not just pick oh, the players from last season because they know they work in the system and they we know they can rely on them when it when it comes to it. Yeah, it's going to be very intriguing, not least, not least because the way that COVID has been handled in, in the United States uh, certainly isn't one of the models that it should be looked for. So whether we actually get a full season remains to be seen because state by state seems to be a very different story in, in the world of COVID at the moment. So fingers crossed we get a full season. Fingers crossed that uh, sport comes back to where it was uh, as soon as possible. Um, we're seeing more and more sports join, uh, including this week, the return of Rugby Union. Uh, but we'll touch on that and other things in this week's Weekly Roundup. The Utility Players Weekly Roundup. Firstly, the weather intervened with the second Test match in Southampton this week, with Pakistan and England only managing to get one and a bit innings in of their four innings game. That means going into the last Test, England have a 1-0 advantage. In golf, the Women's British Open returns to Trunet this week. We'll see if Stacey Lewis can follow up her Scottish Open win at the Renaissance with another win for her. Gallagher Premiership Rugby in England return this week, with the Exeter Chiefs winning 26-13 over the Leicester Tigers, keeping them top of the table. Meanwhile, Saracens sit bottom on minus 62. More controversy in Scottish football, as... All football activity below the SBL has been cancelled. That means hearts have stopped training and we still don't know what's going to happen with Celtic and Aberdeen over their COVID breaches. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about this story in the next few weeks. And finally, the NBA returns to its playoff schedule this week as all 16 teams involved are bubbling in Florida as they look to win the Larry O'Brien NBA Championship Trophy. As we call the episode this week, we still don't know who the winner of last week's polls for the event we'd loads to like to visit. In fact, on both polls at the moment, it is actually currently 50-50. So not one of us can either pretend to take uh, to take the initiative and say that we're going to win. But as uh, as we are continuing on with our series, we've missed out on a couple of top threes. So this week, we thought we'd go for a, a big one. Top three sporting icons. Uh, as I went last week, Roy, you've got the pleasure of going first this week. So yes, yeah, so I've got I've got my three icons here, um, and I think that for me, a lot of it is important for with icons how amazingly talented they were, but then also how they did more than just be amazingly talented. So I think the first one for me is something we've actually talked about a lot about on the show and in the past few weeks, and it, and it is for me Ronnie O'Sullivan just because of the way that he has, for what he's brought to Stuka, for the way he's transformed Stuka, from the way he's taken what is traditionally seen as potentially a slightly more boring sport and made it showblaze, made it made it kind of brought flair and excitement and energy just with his aggressive and unbelievably talented way of playing the game. And he just makes Snooker such a more exciting and watchable sport and just puts Snooker on the map for, for so many people and raises the profile of Snooker in such an amazing way. And he and he probably wouldn't often get considered with some of the best athletes because it because Snooker often goes amiss. I think that's wrong and I think he should be. And I think he's he's one of one of one of the great British sports people we've seen in the past well, since since the start of the twentieth century. And I think he definitely deserves more credit for that. So my number three is Ronnie O'Sullivan. My number two is someone who did so much for not just sport, but just for 
kind of activism and society in general. Actually, my number one is the same, but my number two is Billie Jean King. Obviously, fantastic uh, American tennis player, kind of queen of, of Wimbledon. And just for what she did, not for tennis, but for women's tennis in particular, she was a massive activism for for the for the women's game and for developing female tennis players' rights and, and demanding things like equal pay and equal opportunity. And actually, she uh, was a big part in ensuring that that prize money was the same at the U.S. Open, and that it was equal prize money for the male and the, and the female winner. And obviously, the the big moment in her career was winning the Battle of the Sexes match in front of ninety million people on TV, and it was just such a momentous time for for female sport. And she was such an icon for for the development of of women within the sporting world. And I think that she needs to remember not only for being a fantastic tennis player, but being a fantastic role model and fantastic person in developing women's sport in general and my number one is in a, in a similar vein but even for what this person did outside of sport is Muhammad Ali so we all know Muhammad Ali is a truly iconic figure iconic heavyweight boxer floats like a butterfly stings like a bee and he'll be remembered for some amazing heavyweight clashes but for me it's also what he did outside of that with his activism and with his work for the civil rights movement and his and his work to kind of ba- help battle for the greater good in in the 60s in a time where America was going undergoing huge political change and it was just a man who realized that from his position he had a voice and he had a and had a position that he could help instigate change and and he was such a key figure in the civil rights movement and also such a key figure in, in sport of that period and I think the fact that his name lives on with such legacy till this day when there has been so many great boxers since and the fact that he still reigns above them all shows what an amazing fighter he was both in the ring and also both in the political climate of America at the time. Yeah I, I can't disagree uh, with all of them I I have similar but also very different I, I looked at kind of how people I've looked at Icons, obviously, their ability as athletes, as you said, but also what they've done out with the, their sport and, and often bringing an engagement and a, and a unifying, a unifying na- notion uh, or, or, or change of the way people perceived uh, their, their sport. And, and first of all, I think someone, again, because it comes from a team sport and a team sport that's not followed all around the world, uh, but one that's very close to us, Rory, is uh, Sachin Tendulkar. Age 16, comes on the scene, plays for 20-plus years, the leading run scorer in international cricket, in test cricket, first person to score a double hundred in uh, ODI cricket. And the way he transformed cricket and the way he transformed the game and the way he sort of bring a sort of superstar element to it is something I think is hugely underrated. In a country of, of how many million people where cricket is a religion, I don't think he will ever be eclipsed as the greatest ever and the biggest icon. We've heard this week that, or, or that in the last couple of days, that Mahindra Singh Dhoni has retired, um, and I sort of because of that, you know, sort of recency bias, he came into my mind. But there's no way that even the great MS Dhoni even comes close to what Sachin Tendulkar is as an icon and as a sporting hero. So he's my number three. And my number two is is someone who. Uh, Certainly brought an energy to the game of golf and a passion and a fire and sort of seen, seen it a different way at a time when that wasn't always the case. And that was Sebi Barristeros. 
uh, Seve, who, who unfortunately was taken from us far too young, is when I think of an icon, when I think of a, it's something that brings an image to your mind. And when you think of icons of golf, that smile and that cheeky look and the way he played the game and the way he, he showed that you could play the game slightly differently uh, and yet do it the right way with a, with a passion and a desire and a burn but also with a smile on your face. We talked about earlier, you know, about the best, not having to be that competitive, ruthless, deadpan way of playing. He certainly wasn't that. Uh, I was very fortunate uh, to, to remember watching Seve play and uh, and the way that he gets spoken about uh, by those who, who had the fortune, you know, were fortunate enough to meet him, uh, the rapport that he seems to have, he really is an icon. And uh, my number one, probably in a similar vein to what you're saying about Muhammad Ali uh, and Billy G. King, but especially Muhammad Ali's Jesse Owens. That, you know, I was saying about Seve and iconic pictures. If you, you know, you think about iconic photos and iconic posters and iconic moments in sport, Jesse Owens at the Olympics in Berlin, on, on the podium, on number one. We all know what was happening in Germany, in, in the world at that time. We all know about the rights towards, uh, you know, oppressed oppressing people of different color uh people of different uh race people of different um religious beliefs etc you know it's something that is is still prevalent in society but at a time when it was even more taboo the way he performed on and off and conducted himself on and off the athletics track i i, I honestly don't think there is going to be a more iconic uh picture than him with standing with one fist above his head on on the on the uh, podium, uh, number one. So, I think what what he did and the way he went about to to, to translate to, to to change sport, uh, he has to be my biggest icon um, that I've seen. So that will do us this week. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you on on our latest poll. Um, if you have, please get in contact with us on either Instagram or Twitter with any feedback. Please go on to our Apple podcasts and leave any reviews or, or ratings that you want to. Uh, if there's any segments or anything you want to hear from us, please feel free to get in touch. Uh, any questions you want answers. So uh, as ever, till next week, stay safe and thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm.